Hello and welcome to the Battleground podcast with me, Patrick Bishop and Saul David. Well, the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion is upon us and it is, it must be said, a rather gloomy occasion. At this point last year, there was optimism in the air. Western support for Ukraine was solid and confidence and resources were mounting. All the talk was of a spring or summer offensive that would repeat the success of the previous autumn when large swathes of captured territory east of Kharkiv were liberated. Today, things look very different. Russia still controls, if you include Crimea, about 18% of Ukraine's territory and is currently on the attack. Both outside support and internal morale, as we'll be hearing later, are faltering. So the big question is, what happens next? To help us answer that, we're lucky to have as our guest today, Anglo-Ukrainian journalist Askol Krushelnitsky, who's speaking to us from the Zaporizhia Oblast front lines. We'll be hearing from him in part two. It's fascinating stuff that gives a real insight into the mood on the ground. But it's also been a packed week of news, and the biggest story by far is the murder, because that's what it is, despite official denials, of jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny in a penal colony in northern Russia last Friday. Already more than 400 Russians who attempted to lay flowers in memory of Navalny have been arrested and given sentences in jail of up to two weeks. Navalny's death was followed by reports from Spain of another apparent ruthless settling of scores by Putin's regime, when a former Russian pilot, Maxim Kuzminov, who defected Ukraine with his £15 million MI8 helicopter, was shot and killed near Alicante, probably by agents of Russia's GRU military intelligence service. If these two killings, but particularly Navalny's, and the brutal treatment of civilian mourners don't reveal the true nature of Russia's lawless, kleptocrat, gangster government, then I don't know what will. And of course, the other big event is Ukraine's withdrawal from the small Donetsk town of Avdiivka after a gruelling four-month siege. It's a battle that's left both sides battered. We don't know the extent of Ukrainian losses, but they would have been very heavy. As for Russia, they're estimated, by Ukraine that is, to have lost at least 30,000 troops killed and wounded, as well as 400 tanks and infantry fighting vehicles. The question that must be on everyone's mind, Saul, is was it worth it? I mean, for both of them, for the Russians to spend so much blood and equipment, uh, but also for Ukraine to put up such a dogged defence for what everyone agrees is a pretty sort of unimportant strategic location. On the Ukrainian side, it's, it's particularly worth asking the question, given the inevitable wastage of precious lives, a commodity that they have in very short supply. I mean, isn't this exactly the sort of pointless stand that the detractors of the new Ukrainian commander-in-chief, Alexander Sierski, have been complaining about? Yes, and we're going to hear a little bit from Askold about the attitude of the troops to Sierski. If you look at it from both sides, from the Russian point of view, really, this is a PR exercise. We we can see with Bakhmut, um, from which there's been very little advance, you'll have noticed, Patrick, even though people in the West were saying, yes, this is going to lead to an operational breakthrough. Complete nonsense. And almost certainly we'll, uh, this will be a similar situation with Avdivka. But uh, Putin needed a victory before the elections. He's got one. He's able to tell the world that Russia is on the up, it's going to win this war. I don't think it says anything of the kind. It, it emphasizes the brutality of the regime and its willingness to lay down enormous number of lives to achieve very little tactical gain. 
But the question can also be asked from the Ukrainian side, why did they hold on so long, Patrick? And I think really it's a question of timing here. Yes, it's useful to have a killing ground where they're killing a lot of Russians and destroying a lot of their military equipment, but they don't want a sort of a a potentially chaotic withdrawal, which is what some of the uh, reports in the press are saying. And certainly they don't want the sight of Ukrainians being taken prisoner and being executed by the Russians. So the question is, should they have got out earlier? That's really the the point. And I think when you got to the point, we all saw the maps when the Russians were on three sides of Avdivka, and yet there was still a, a route out. That's the time they should have organized some kind of orderly withdrawal. They seem to have stayed there too long, and that's probably an error that you can put at Sersky's door. What's your feeling about this, Patrick? Uh, yeah, well, what uh, I wonder, Saul, is the explanation previously for uh, holding places like Avdivka and uh, indeed Bakhmut was that they provided, as you said, uh, a killing ground where they could degrade Russian capacity, both in manpower and equipment, and that this was a sort of, you know, the meat grinder was, was the analogy that was always used, and that eventually this would have some effect on Russian morale and uh, you know, Russian willingness to keep on fighting, I suppose. That, that was the stated aim uh, of actually holding these places. But I wonder, I really do wonder, I think we've passed the point where these battles actually impact Russian morale. Um, I was very struck by an extraordinary video I saw shot on a head cam on the Avdivka uh, battlefield. Now, this is, uh, if you can find it on YouTube, it should, it should be there somewhere. It's a really extraordinary glimpse of A, the amazing sort of destruction that is wrought in these battles, but also the attitude of the Russians themselves. So what it is, is a guy leading uh, a fellow soldier through the presumably just recently uh, vacated patch of land that was a few days before been a, a raging battlefield. There are corpses strewn everywhere, even though there's already been a corpse recovery uh, unit sent out to retrieve bodies, according to the, the guy who's speaking. You can hear his commentary. But what struck me was... Um, the, the sort of sense of resignation. He's just saying to his pal, yeah, it was hell here and all the rest of it. Look at that. You know, look at those destroyed tanks. Oh, look, there's another body over there. We were very low, to, low on food and we even ran low on water. And water was actually more important than food. Oh, look, there's a, a guy there with a backpack on with maybe he's got some water in his equipment, you know. So, but there's this sort of complete resignation, uh, the idea that this is just how it is. And I think we've reached that point, Saul, that we both know about from our own military history, where everyone's lost sight. The soldier on the front line has completely lost sight of whatever the initial aims of the of the war were, as told to him by his superiors. And the only way to get through the war is to win it. So there's no going back, there's only going forward. And so in that case, your best chance of actually surviving is to carry on fighting. I, I got the sense from this extraordinary video that that's the case with the Russians. Um, just on that point, I think it's quite extraordinary. I think this must be the first time in a, in a war ever uh, where we get a major war, that is, where we get a real feel for the conditions of the front lines, thanks to all these sort of GoPro footage shot by the combatants that finds its way onto social media on both sides. Anyway, as we all know, I'm the gloomy sod in this partnership. So so give us some good news. Give the listeners some good news. Well, there are a few shafts of light uh, in this gloomy landscape. Uh, The better news for Ukraine this week includes the claimed shooting down of six Russian jets used to drop highly destructive guided aerial bombs in three days. The destruction of yet another Russian warship, the Caesar 
Kunikov by unmanned sea drones and Denmark's announcement that it is donating its entire stock of artillery shells to Ukraine. Okay, on the other hand, the US House of Representatives has still not passed the $61 billion aid package to Ukraine, which prompted British Foreign Secretary David Cameron to compare the naysayers to the appeasers of Hitler in the 1930s. And who knows, maybe Navalny's murder will prompt the Republican congressmen to change their minds and vote through the package. And maybe reports that Russia is plotting to put a nuclear weapon into space will tip the balance in favour of Ukraine. We'll discuss the implications of all of this, but let's talk first, Patrick, about Navalny's killing. It was not entirely unexpected, was it? No, but it was still shocking, uh, not least because of the sheer vindictiveness of it and and at first sight the pointlessness of it uh, the Navalny movement's been hollowed out inside Russia as it was it once was a a political force to be reckoned with but that's long gone and Putin faces no conceivable threat in the elections in a few weeks time so why do it then well it's it's essentially a performance isn't it so first of all there's the classic Putin style ambiguity the facts are all obfuscated the circumstances of death you know we don't really know what happened we probably never will you know the latest is that the authorities are not going to release the body to the family for several weeks until tests are done whatever that means Navalny's widow the very redoubtable Lyudmila Navalny is saying that he was poisoned by Novichok which is the nerve agent that was used in the previous attempt on his life back in 2021 and she says it seems very plausible uh, that they're waiting uh, for traces of the agent to be flushed from the body or whatever before they hand it over, so there won't be any evidence. Anyway, the absolute lack of transparency leaves lots of room for useful idiots in the conspiracy-ridden internet to run riot with all sorts of theories that blame everyone but Putin. We all know that ultimately he was responsible. Well, my view is that Putin's aim in all this, as with a lot of what he does, is to demonstrate to the world that he's capable of anything. He's saying, in effect, uh, I didn't need to kill Navalny. I know it's pointless and it breaches every notion of how a decent, civilized political leader should behave, but I did it anyway. And if I can do this, think of what might be done down the line when it comes to escalating the war. And maybe you should take the nuclear threats that we utter from time to time a bit more seriously. What's your take, Saul? Well, at first sight, it seems to be rather counterproductive, doesn't it? The timing seems very odd with US congressmen still undecided about whether to pass the aid package for Ukraine or not. This might, as I've said, just might tip the balance in favour of Ukraine. But I suspect the answer is that Putin, delighted with the capture of Avdivka and convinced that the war is well on the way to being won, wants to clear the decks of opponents prior to the election and frankly doesn't care about the consequences. But he should, because minor tactical victories like the capture of Avdivka are not going to change the bigger picture much. This was confirmed by our old friends at the ISW, who noted that Russian forces have not yet demonstrated an ability to secure operationally significant gains or conduct rapid mechanized maneuver across large swathes of territory. And the capture of Avdivka should not be taken as demonstrating this capability. What might change the picture in the coming year is if Europe and the US give Ukraine the weapons, particularly the artillery ammunition, to fight on a level playing field. As I keep saying, in an economic arm wrestle, Russia can't compete in the long run against a united Europe, let alone the US. So aid to the Ukrainians does matter, 
And Putin should be under no illusions about that. Just a quick thing on the economic uh, front, Patrick. You mentioned last week that the economic outlook for Russia was looking fairly rosy. Uh, well, that's not the opinion of financial journalist Ambrose Pritchard Evans, who wrote yesterday in the Daily Telegraph that Russia is losing the economic war. He made a lot of fascinating points. So I'm just going to point out a few. Uh, defense spending in Russia has tripled since the invasion and is now running at 8% of national output, roughly the level it was under the Soviet Union. And we know how that ended. He answered that growth figures are misleading because industrial production is stagnating and even the energy sector is suffering from declining revenues down from 40 billion a month in early 2022 to 23 billion this January and not enough to cover the 65% rise in the budget over the last year. He adds Russia's GDP figures are a red herring, a labor shortage and capacity restraints have fueled overheating pushing interest rates to 16%, while what remains of the consumption economy atrophies. And he goes on, as I say, to make a, a number of other points. There are shortages all over the place, uh, and there is uh, an underlying feeling that trouble is afoot. Now, with that in mind, the reckless and cowardly murder of Navalny, and to a lesser extent, the extrajudicial killing of the defected pilot in a NATO country, Spain, do not look like good moves to me, Patrick, because they simply underline the rogue nature of Putin's regime and the need to defeat it in Ukraine before it turns on its next victim. So what about the more encouraging news for Ukraine, Patrick? What do you think that means? Uh, well, just to get back to what uh, Ambrose Evans Pritchard was saying, I mean, I did, when I was talking about the Russian move to a war economy, I did say that that did come with all sorts of uh, of negatives, including you know huge labour shortages. If everyone's going off to work in the in war industry, then it means that the domestic production is going to suffer. I think everyone has pointed up these um, downside of all this. You know, it's a very short term uh, strategy. It means the economy inevitably is going to overheat, which indeed uh, even Russian think tanks and uh, you know ec economic experts are, have been predicting. So, but I, it's, it's all a question of how you know how much time does Russia actually need to gain the upper hand and to gain its objectives. And they have obviously calculated that, yeah, there might be trouble down the line, but in the meantime, it's worth it. Anyway, to get back to some good news, yeah, this uh, Ukraine sunk another Russian amphibious ship, the, uh, as you said, the Caesar Kudikov, uh, with the sea drones, which seem to be incredibly effective. And Ukraine's, you know, said, yeah, we did it. And it's... Um, calculating that its forces have now disabled a third of the Russian Black Sea fleet. So that's a total of 24 vessels. It's taken out plus one submarine since uh, the full-scale invasion began, which is a pretty incredible feat given that Ukraine doesn't have a, have a navy effectively. And then more planes being shot down, two more uh, Su-34 fighter bombers and an Su-35 fighter was shot down in, in recent days. But, of course, you know, we keep coming back to this essential issue of, of, of military supplies. We've been going on about it for the last two weeks. It's about, you know, who can keep the flow of armaments to the front uh, going most successfully. And I think the Ukrainians can take heart from the pledge made by the Danish Prime Minister, Meta Friedrichsen, at the uh, Munich Security Conference last week. This is the annual gathering of politicians, military types, think tankers, etc., sometimes referred to as the... Davos of defense. Okay, you know, Denmark's a small country, but it's all about this growing recognition uh, of the crisis that the West's basically facing here. So Denmark's doing its absolute 
Best donating all the artillery shells in its inventory to Kiev. This was the pledge that uh, Prime Minister Friedrichsen uh, made. She said, I'm sorry to say, friends, that there is still ammunition stock in Europe. This is not a, only a question about production because we have weapons, we have ammunition, we have our defences that we don't use at the moment that we should deliver to Ukraine. We have to do more. So we'll be hearing a little bit more about this in the, in the second half and a listener's question. But um, this is just the sort of commitment that Ukraine needs if it's going to win. And the move was naturally warmly praised by President Zelensky, who was at the gathering. And um, this is just a sort of uh, response that he was hoping for. Do you think others going to get the message, Saul? Well, hopefully. I mean, the appeals, to be fair, have already had their effects, um, but it's probably a case, uh, the more you get of them, that of diminishing returns. Europe, we should say, uh, as we mentioned last week, is already stepping up to support Ukraine. And I think the growing realisation of the Russian threat is now as much a factor as showing solidarity with Ukraine. The Russian strategy, as we've been saying for a long time, has been to cow its opponents by demonstrating that it doesn't recognize the limits that we impose on ourselves, hence the Navalny killing and the other bullying gambits like the issuing uh, this week of an arrest warrant for the highly regarded but combative Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalas for allegedly destroying Soviet-era monuments. But there are much bigger threats in the offing. Uh, reports coming in from the US, for example, that Russia is trying to put nuclear weapons in space via secret military satellite launches that date back to early 2022, which would be a violation of a half-century-old treaty. The intention, according to CNN, would be to develop a nuclear space weapon that could destroy satellites by creating a massive energy wave, which, when detonated, would potentially cripple a vast swathe of the commercial and government satellites that the world depends on for cell phones, surfing the internet, and everything else. Now, true or not, such reports are being taken seriously in Washington, where Mike Turner, the Republican chair of the House Intelligence Committee, issued a statement last week saying his panel, and I quote, had information concerning a serious national security threat. Whether Russia had, has the technological capability to pull this off, given the obvious inadequacies of its conventional military weapons, is another matter. But it certainly has the will to do it, uh, which is yet another reason to stop Russia in Ukraine before it gets more out of hand. It does all come down to the fact that I think is uh, crystal clear now that Ukraine is right in saying that it's really fighting our war for us. It's their war, yes, but it's in our overwhelming interest that they win it. Uh, the prospect of the West putting boots on the ground seems more remote than ever, but that focuses attention on how many more lives Ukraine is prepared to lose. We've been talking about this, haven't we, Saul, about it's a tricky subject um, and one that Askell is going to address in part two. And that is uh, whether Ukraine is doing enough in manpower terms to win the war. Now, you mentioned uh, this interesting statistic that popped up in a comment piece this week that uh, Ukraine, which is a country with a population of just under 44 million, has one million men under arms. Yet, if we go back to the First World War, when France had a slightly smaller population, around 40 million, they put 8 million servicemen into the field uh, during the course of the, of the First World War. So, you know, we go back to the, the row between uh, Zeluzhny, the armed forces chief Zeluzhny and Zelensky, about his request for a further 500,000 soldiers. Just on that point about uh, 
about France. I mean, the effect on the workforce was absolutely extraordinary because France in those days was still a very heavily agricultural country. So the countryside was you know, pretty much emptied of fighting age men, which severely reduced agricultural output. So, you know, it is a fascinating question, isn't it? Given the relatively uh, parallel populations, should there be more men at the front? And this is something that, as I say, Ascol will be talking about later. What, what do you think about all this? Or? Well, I mean, it's hard to sit in a foreign country and, and say to the Ukrainians that more men should go to the front line and die. But really, this is about fairness. It's about sharing the load, Patrick. And I think it's extraordinary for the two of us to realize, as I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, that the minimum age for fighting in the Ukrainian army, and if you think that a million men are in arms, only a small fraction of those guys will actually be at the front. Armies always have very long tails. But the minimum age is either 26 or 27, but it's in that sort of region. There was a, you know, a lot of trouble recently when it was suggested it should be brought down further. Now, Going back to the Second World War, and indeed all wars that we've covered, Patrick, you know, most of the guys doing the frontline fighting tend to be between 18 and 24. Some of the officers are a bit older, some of the NCOs. And yet you don't have a single guy in Ukraine, unless he's volunteered and is absolutely determined, to, uh, you know, serve at that sort of age. So it strikes me that it makes a lot of sense that they're going to spread the net a little bit wider, not just because it's fairer, but because morale for an army absolutely depends on, as we've seen so many times, when there's trouble in armies, certainly with morale, it's because they're unhappy with their conditions of service. It could be, you know, how long they're spending on the front line is a really important factor, whether they get the chance to see their families. And of course, the fewer men you've got under arms, the longer they have to be serving at the front. And that is a problem. And that's something that Asgold actually uh, talks about, that this question of leave, you know, which is, as you say, absolutely fundamental to maintaining morale. Just before we go uh, for this half, I wanted to share this with our listeners who might not have seen it. It's about a spat between Tucker Carlson, who must be feeling a bit bruised after giving a respectful hearing to Putin, given the fact that he'd just arranged the murder of a man who stood for all the freedoms that Carlson is supposed to support. And our own Boris Johnson, this was in a, an item in The Spectator I picked up there just this morning. Well, Boris and Tucker don't like each other very much, it appears. After the invasion of Ukraine, Boris accused Carlson of intimidating Republicans who might otherwise support the funding of Ukraine in its war. Um, Carlson, for his part, has called Johnson a terrified old woman. Well, things have just got nastier. Earlier this month, Boris demolished Carlson's now infamous interview with Putin. Quotes, um, he didn't ask tough questions. He didn't ask Putin why even now he is using the most brutal means of modern warfare to maim and murder innocent Ukrainian civilians, Johnson wrote in his newspaper column. Instead, he said, Carlson acted like a fan and boneheadedly accepted Putin's mixture of semi-masticated Wikipedia and outright <laughs> falsehood. Johnson went on, not since George Galloway went to Baghdad and hailed the infatigability of Saddam Hussein have we seen such a display of bum-sucking civility to a tyrant. <laughs> Johnson argued that Carlson was, quote, just the medium, the sewer, the hose for Putin to spread his message to America, listeners will remember this was George Galloway, who was a kind of um, maverick British politician who went off during at the height of the, just before the Iraq war, to interview Saddam Hussein in an incredible display of sycophancy. I can remember it very clearly. It was sort of both hilarious and sickening at the same time. Anyway, this all this provocation has forced uh, 
Carlson to react, and he proposed that the two, i.e. he and Johnson, slug it out in a debate, uh, mano a mano at the Oxford University Union or, or somewhere similar. And Johnson's people came back saying that he was up for it, but there were conditions. Now, according to Carlson, these conditions included a payment of $1 million. And he went out and said, you know, this is the sort of man Johnson is. He's demanding $1 million. And the Johnson team apparently is saying the money was going to be, yes, they were asking for that money, but it was going to be paid to Ukrainian veterans charities. Who knows? Who knows? But the upshot is that there ain't going to be this grand uh, debate, which is a shame in a way, because it would have made great tea. Don't you think, uh, Saul? And say what you like about Johnson. You can forgive him a lot for his steadfast support for Ukraine from the very first hour. He would have made mincemeat with Tucker at that debate. It would have been very interesting. I mean, one of, one of the things you could, even from the quotes you've given, Patrick, as you see, he's got a beautiful turn of phrase. Uh, was he a great prime minister? No, I don't think history's going to be kind enough. But <laughs> certainly on the stand of, of Ukraine, uh, he, he will come well out of that. Okay, that's all we have time for in part one. Do join us after the break when, as promised, we'll be hearing from journalist Askel Kruselnitsky, who's currently on the front line, not far from Avdivka. Askold, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you on. Could you just tell our listeners where you are right now and how you got there? By what means did you get to where you are now? Right. I'm in the boundaries between Zaporizhia and Dnipropetrovsk regions. And I'm near a town called Yulai Pole. And the battalion that I'm staying with at the moment is holding the line around here between this town, Yulai Pole. Um, and a little town called Malinu to the east. I better just explain to the listeners that background noise you can hear is uh, you're in a command post, so uh, it's, it's just the sound of the soldiers going about their their duties. But the, you had a fascinating trip down there, didn't you? I understand you, you came from a convoy that started off in South Wales, and this was uh, providing vehicles and medical uh, and other supplies to a unit in eastern Ukraine. But the, but this is this goes back a long way. There are historical links between the um, people who started the initiative, initiative who are essentially miners or from, from a mining uh, tradition in South Wales who have long fraternal links with the miners in the Donbass. Is that right? Um, that's indeed the case. That um, The links were established because during the Soviet era, in a carefully kind of choreographed way, some Ukrainian miners from the Donbass area and in Dnipropetrovsk, region, where, which is also called a coal mining region, was sent on a fraternal mission to greet and support the NUM, National Union of Mine Workers and other coal miners who were taking part in an epic strike 40 years ago this month, I think, marks um, that anniversary. And um, one of the miners' leaders addressed the, and spent time with the NUM miners and um, they were in Wales much of the time. And when he got back, um, he was asked to address Ukrainian miners and the Ukrainian Communist Party. And he started telling them about his trip. And he said that um, despite all the um, things that he'd heard about how miners were oppressed and there was no free speech, their conditions were much better and there was free um, speech. And for that, he was expelled from the Communist Party, he said. But he then went on to form an independent miners' union, which took part in um, pro-democracy rallies 
and during this orange revolution in Ukraine in 2004 and the Maidan in 2014. And at a conference in Kolkata in 2007, an energy conference, he was present there and he met again some of these Welsh miners and um, they kept up contact. And when uh, the Russians invaded in the full-blown invasion on February 24th, 2022, these miners in Ukraine formed various military units and they turned to the the people that they knew at the NUN asking for help vehicles medical supplies drones and uh, these people the welsh miners and others in throughout britain um, responded and since july 2022 this was the ninth convoy of vehicles that they sent this time there were three vehicles and um, they were stuffed with drones with medical equipment and i accompanied them as they were driven from Pontypridd near cardiff to folks and went in the train tunnel to uh, calais and then we drove uh, across europe across the polish ukrainian border about 10 days ago now and then handed over the vehicles and all the kit the following day in cave so tell us what's going on where you are now. I mean, you're not far from Avdivka, are you? Can you tell us what the kind of situation is uh, militarily where, where you are now within the bounds of operational security, obviously? I, I think where I am is, is actually 45, 50 miles to the southwest of Audiuka, but it's, it's part of the Audiuka front. And the um, people I'm with are the 104th Brigade, and I'm with a specific battalion, the 74th um, Battalion. And uh, uh, they've been here actually for two years, nearly two years. But since Saturday, um, they say that the attacks have been have stepped up dramatically, and they suspect that some of the Russian troops and resources, artillery, tanks, other armor, etc., um, have been transferred, redeployed here. But um, they've unfortunately suffered many more casualties, including dead they had in previous months, and they think that the Russians may be feeling that they're on a roll and they're, tr- they're pressing Ukrainian lines, not just here, but in other places. And one of the things I've heard at a- another desk is that um, they're trying to get in touch with a family of somebody who's been killed. Okay. Um, Askold, the big news this week, as you've already alluded to, uh, was the fall of Avdivka. You'll have to uh, excuse my pronunciation. Um, well said, Avdivka, perfect pronunciation, so. There are reports, as I'm sure you're aware, in some Western outlets, including, I think, the New York Times, that say that the fall was pretty chaotic, that up to a thousand Ukrainians were taken prisoner. What have you heard from where you are? I am trying to find out um, about that. And um, I've spoken to people here, obviously, and they say that at their level, they don't know. There's um, contradictory reports. The general staff are saying that they would do, I guess, that the falling back from Avdiyuka was done in an orderly way. But um, a a source that you and everybody else trusts and often quotes the ISW um, said that they didn't see any evidence of a disorderly sort of full-on panicked retreat. But there are indeed stories coming out and evidence that some Ukrainian troops didn't manage to get out. They were surrounded. 
there's evidence that six captured soldiers and they were alive when they were captured because they were using their cell phones to call relatives. And uh, one was actually on the cell phone when the Russians came into place where he was and told them to switch off the phone. And they've since been shown by Russian media bloggers. Uh, their corpses have been shown. So there's evidence, but we've seen that before, that Ukrainian soldiers surrendering have been um, executed. The New York Times have mentioned a figure of 850 to 1,000 Ukrainian soldiers captured. The people here don't know. I haven't been in a position to talk to somebody who might know. The feeling is that it might not be that many, but certainly a number of Ukrainian soldiers have been um, captured and some have been killed whilst trying to surrender or after having surrendered. Now, Askel, you've spent most of the time since the war began in Ukraine and you're in a position to actually log how the mood has changed in that period. Can you tell us how you feel morale is now compared to how it was a year ago? Look, as you say, I've been here for most of the um, time of the full-blown invasion. I was here days before it kicked off in February, on February the 24th, 2022, because I was convinced that there would be an invasion. And I was in a town called Severodonetsk in the east of Ukraine, which then slowly became reduced to rubble. Many people killed, and the Ukrainian army had to withdraw to a town a few miles to the west, Lysychansk, which was also reduced to rubble. And then they withdrew to Bakhmut, which um, became then um, probably the, the biggest battle that the European continent had seen since the Second World War. And that was also reduced to a rubble. So there's three towns that I've seen reduced to rubble. This place called Hulaipole, near this area, was famous because there was an Ukrainian anarchist called Nestor Makhno, who in the 20s, 30s, fought in this area against Bolshevik rule, but also against Ukrainian troops. And this town was, uh, until a few months ago, was more or less intact, and now that's being gradually reduced. So you ask about morale. And there's been a stark change since around this time last year, when Ukrainians felt that they were on a winning streak, having, in a surprise attack, taken back lots of territory in the northeast of the country, principally in the Kharkiv um, region, and also liberated the city of Kherson, which was the only regional capital that the Russians had managed to, to take. And the pledges of more increasingly precise, accurate, sophisticated weapons from principally the US, but also from Britain and other supporters of Ukraine. So everything looked good. And um, this time I've arrived, it's the gloomiest, I'd say, atmosphere that I felt sensed here since the first weeks of the conflict, uh, the full-blown conflict when it looked and British intelligence and US intelligence were saying that Kiev could be taken by the Russians within days or the whole country within a week. There was um, concern and anxiety of them. Things got better. Now there's the same kind of level of concern, I'd say, especially the um, imbroglio in the US Congress, which has held up for months and months. Aid military aid, another aid to Ukraine. We all know that America does provide, has provided the lion's share of military aid 
And I've been to a few places that where an artillery battalion, four big artillery pieces, either Soviet 152 millimeter caliber or Western provided 155 millimeter caliber, they're down to two shells. And so they're not able to provide cover in the way that they they were for their own troops. And of course, uh, the fall of Avdiyuka has to a great extent been blamed on this shortage of um, ammunition, which has uh, really undermined Ukraine's capability to defend its lines. Askold, recently the commander of the armed forces, Zaluzhny, was replaced with Sersky, the former ground forces commander. And so we've been told by various sources this has not gone down well with the ordinary rank and file or indeed with the, the soldiers on the front line more generally. What's the sort of sense you, you've got from the unit you're in at the moment? How have they taken to this news? Is it above their pay grade or do they have a, a kind of sense that Sersky is the sort of man who's going to hold on to places like Avdivka arguably too long and that this is not necessarily a good move? Look, the audience won't be able to see it, of course, but you can see uh, because we're on a video link poster of somebody behind me uh, that they got on. That's um, Zaluzhny, uh, the commander that has just been dismissed. And they wouldn't like me to name people by names because no soldier is going to go on the record criticizing the commander-in-chief. But uh, it's easy to sense that Zaluzhny was somebody that they respected and they liked him. Um, I haven't heard many people praising his replacement. On the contrary, um, people point out that he may be a competent officer and it could have been bad luck, but he's associated with two disastrous events before the full-blown invasion. This is 2014-15, where Ukrainian soldiers were surrounded by um, Russians and basically blasted to pieces by artillery with um, hundreds, maybe thousands, killed. And he's very much associated with these two disasters in a place called Debaltsevo and another one called Ilovice. Also, there's a perception that he wasn't replaced because of military reasons, but because of politicking, that some people around Zelensky and his administration were envious that Zaluzhny's personal popularity in successive uh, polls outrun that, uh, was higher than that of President Volodymyr Zelensky. And people knew that if there was a presidential election, all the polls showed that Zaluzhny, if he chose to stand, and he never expressed a wish to stand, um, would have won. So there's irritation amongst many people that this decision to replace a popular commander, Zaluzhny, who'd obviously proven his worth by Sivsky, had more to do with politics. Looking uh, to the months ahead, you know, spring is here. The military tradition is that uh, you start thinking about offensive action. We all know that last year's offensive didn't go terribly well. Do you get any sense that the Ukrainian posture will be anything other than holding the line as best it can? Or is there likely to be any attempt to break through that you can see or you've heard about in the coming months? Um, everybody is keeping their eyes on what happens in the American Congress. We know that the Senate uh, has now broken the impasse uh, amongst its own ranks and wants to 
pass the necessary legislation to allow supplies to Ukraine, military supplies from the US to resume to Ukraine. But the sticking point is still in the House of Representatives. And everybody is waiting to see how that is resolved. They hope that there will be a positive outcome for Ukraine. But further down the line, former President Trump looks like he's going to be the Republican candidate. And he's got, at the moment, a more or less even chance of winning back the presidency. And because he's never failed to miss an opportunity, he's never missed an opportunity to praise Putin, and he's remained deafeningly silent over the atrocious things that Putin has done lately, being responsible, I think. Most people uh, hold Putin responsible from Navalny's death, the head of the um, one of the most prominent Russian opposition leaders. So down the line, even if this is mess in Congress is resolved, there's the specter of a Trump presidency, which again, doesn't herald anything, wouldn't herald anything good for Ukraine. But even though people are obviously unhappy about the this, this situation, I haven't heard anybody say, we've got to um, start negotiating, we've got to throw in the towel. People are determined to carry on fighting. There's always a joke and a, and a grin from these people when uh, they're talking even about the most difficult things. And the most difficult things for them are quite a lot of their comrades have been killed in recent days. So there's a determination. And in the broader population, civilians as well, there's a determination to, to carry on. Also, they know what's happened in places where the Russians did occupy territory and then had to withdraw the executions, the torture, the rape, quite apart from mass looting. And Putin has made it clear that his aim is to eradicate Ukraine really as a separate entity from the map. He says that Ukraine hasn't got a separate identity and that Ukraine is a fake country. And he just wants to turn it into a colony, a province of, of Russia. So Putin's not providing any incentive for people in Ukraine to negotiate. There's never been any evidence of good faith that you can trust what Putin said. So these people will carry on fighting, but morale is definitely at a lower level than um, it was this time last year. There was a telling thing and a disturbing thing when uh, this convoy that I was with, three vehicles, we went over the Polish-Ukrainian border. The Ukrainian side, there was a, a lady border guard, uniformed border guard, who was helping us with paperwork. She asked us, do you think Ukraine will survive? And that took all of us aback, because even a few months ago, the question would have been, how long before victory? Do you think that we'll win? This will be over in 2024. The questions were of an entirely different nature. I was taken back. Will Ukraine survive? And that's from a, a uniformed person. And more disturbingly, see how much aid is coming over from the West. They can actually see part of the mechanism that's uh, convoys and trains loaded with uh, weapons for Ukraine come over. Part of her remark was provoked by seeing that there's less of this stuff coming over in recent times. Askel, Ukraine, uh, Zelensky in particular, uh, quite rightly, has been asking for support, particularly military support, since the start of the full-scale invasion. 
But could Ukraine be doing more to help itself in terms of manpower? We've been looking at the numbers. There are about a million men under arms. Uh, before Zaluzhny was sacked, he was calling for another 500,000, which didn't go down that well and may have contributed to his removal. Um, obviously, politically, this is not a good look. But is it necessary? We, we were looking at the figures for the French in the First World War. I know it's not directly comparable, but it's interesting. They had a population of 40 million and they had 8 million men under arms. Now, I'm not suggesting that Ukraine does that, but it may feel to the men at the front, the men who are in the room with you today, that a relatively small number of them are shouldering all of the burden. Do you get any sense that there is a feeling among soldiers that they would like more of their fellow countrymen to play their part? Um, yes, there definitely is. And as you said, Saul, the uh, question of conscription is now a political one. The military under Zaluzhny made their position clear that more people need it. Um, everyone around here would like to see more people coming in to take part in this increased um, intensity of battle here. But also, over the last two years, they've had very, very small amounts of leave this particular brigade is based right in the west of Ukraine. So other people who are serving in other units from eastern Ukraine, they can visit at weekends or, or maybe their wives and kids can come to places, safe places close by, and they can see them. These guys, some of them have only seen their wives and kids three times for short periods in two years. So that's obviously uh, not good for morale. And uh, even though physically they're fit, just two years of more or less constant um, combat has a debilitating um, effect on, on anybody. So they're very much in, in favor of, of getting uh, more people into the armed forces and getting conscription at a higher level. I can tell you one person, a captain, asked me in a kind of half-comic um, half serious way. If I threw a practice grenade into a nightclub in um, Kiev, do you think that I'd be arrested? And he asked that question because it irritates them that they see young people of military age uh, seemingly having no concern, indifferent to, to those that are fighting on their behalf. And they, there's pictures in TV reports of them drinking, going out, having a fine time, dancing. And so I told this captain, who's a pal of mine, that probably better not to do that. Look, there's somebody I have to speak to just for a... I think that will, uh, that will do it, Asgold. That was very, very good indeed, just exactly what we wanted. Thank you very much indeed. Um, so go off and see your captain. I'll call you later on, but thanks a million. That was, that was brilliant. I would like to say that you guys have done a fantastic job I've listened to what you've been reporting about Ukraine. Sometimes you've had me on before, and it is very accurate. You've brought a fantastically vivid picture of what's happening in, in Ukraine. And you did the same for the Israel-Gaza situation. I know that lots of Ukrainian um, soldiers and civilians who, who understand, who've got a good understanding of English, listen to your podcast, and, and they would all thank you for your work. That's great to hear, Askold. Try and stay safe, please. Um, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Cheerio. Thank you. 
Well, that was fascinating, Patrick, wasn't it? It was great to hear from Askold right on the front line and also get a sense of the mood of the soldiers, confirming some of the things we suspected, uh, not least that the frontline troops would like more guys to step up and join them so they can have more time with their families. And also the fact that Sersky, frankly, is not terribly popular among the rank and file. Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, we're very fortunate to have have the services of Askold, who really has, uh, you know, he spent most of the last two years in Ukraine uh, doing his bit one way or another. Okay, on to um, listeners' questions. Um, We're going to start off with one from Peter in France, who says, Dear Saul and Patrick, until today's episode, I hadn't appreciated the mineral wealth in Ukraine, and that immediately brought to mind Daniel Yergin's book, The Price, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money and Power, which um, is pretty self-explanatory. And he says, um, the minerals you mentioned could be said to be the future prize. And if this is a strong motivator for Russia, which already has an abundance of oil and gas, then which of its other bordering countries would be prioritized as acquisitions? Well, that's something that relates to a a later question that I'm going to come on to. But he goes on, by the way, thank you, Patrick, for the recommendation in the year-end podcast to read Alan Phillips' The Red Hotel, The Untold Story of Stalin's Disinformation War, which I'm enjoying. I haven't read any of your or Saul's books. Can you advise which ones to start with us. Okay, so I'm sure we could probably uh, go on for quite a long time about this. But okay, what would you recommend to Peter as uh, his sort of go-to title of your output? Uh, Too many to list, Patrick. But I mean, upcoming, of course, uh, and he's only got to wait a few weeks, is uh, my story of British Airborne in the Second World War, Sky Warriors, which comes out in late April. Uh, And that is going to cover a lot of the bases of 1944, of course, including D-Day and Arnhem, of which it's the 80th anniversary. So we'll be chatting about that on our on our sister strand, which is Battleground 44. But you've also got a book coming out this year, Patrick, haven't you, which I know that Peter will be interested in reading when he gets to it. Yeah, well, I would, you know, I think I'd always recommend the latest one. And you live in France, Peter, so this should uh, have some resonance with you. And that's my book on the liberation of Paris, Paris 44, where I've looked again at the at the liberation of Paris in August uh, 1944. But I've tried to do it in a slightly unusual way, which is sort of um, seen as far as possible through the eyes of a rather unusual bunch of people who were there from on all sides, including, um, you know, people like J.D. Salinger, the kind of great novelist of, of, I suppose, late adolescence, if you like. His best known book, of course, was The Catcher in the Rye, which was required reading for a whole generation after the war, who served with the 4th Infantry Division, some other famous names, Ernest Hemingway, of course, uh, Bob Carper, the brilliant war photographer, but also people on all sides, French, German, etc., to try and sort of see the thing from their different perspectives, from that of a collaborator, from that of a resistant, from that of a communist, from that of a conservative, all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I've put a hell of a lot of effort into it, and I hope uh, it's worthwhile. When you've finished a book, you never really know how good it is, but um, hopefully this will be something you'll enjoy. Okay, moving on. Mark Harris in New Zealand says, Kia ora, Saul and Patrick. You touched on this in last week's podcast with the recent change in leadership in the Ukrainian high command. I read with interest a summary of the interview that General Sersky gave to a German media outlet, ZDF, in which he said, the goal of our operation is to exhaust the enemy, inflict maximum losses on them using our fortifications, our technical advantages in terms of unmanned aviation, EW systems, and maintaining prepared defense lines. 
This seems, says Mark, to be an admission that Ukraine cannot win this war through offensive action, even with increased military aid from the West, at least on land as opposed to water in the Black Sea, where success seems evident. But given what we know of history, do you really think Ukraine can win a defensive-based long-term attritional war over Russia in this way? Previous conflicts would suggest not. Well, it has been a bit of a gloomy podcast up till now, but I'm a little bit more optimistic about this, Mark, actually. I mean, the Sesky point's interesting, isn't it? He's saying, you know, we're going to defend for the foreseeable future. And that is concerning if they defend in the wrong way. I've already made my point about Abdivka. If if you're going to hold a place like that, you need to get out before it's likely to be completely surrounded. But there are some just the tiny little uh, shafts of light. I've spoken about some of them, but, but even this morning, there's an indication that if the package, the aid package from America does go through, Biden is going to give longer range attackums. And the longer range attackums are necessary to knock out targets at a range of at least 200 miles well before they get to uh, you know, the frontline situation. And this, so the military experts tell us, is going to make a big difference. They will be able to target places like those artillery systems around Belgorod, for example, if they're allowed to use those weapons outside Ukraine. But even if they, they can only use them within Ukraine, they are going to make a difference. So I'm not entirely as pessimistic as you, Mark, that things can only go downhill from here. It's interesting, isn't it, Saul, that Sierski lays this all out sort of, you know, so boldly and clearly. I think it's what we pretty much anticipated would be the strategy going forward. But the question is is a very good one. You know, is that enough to win the war? Well, the answer is, of course, we don't know. But I would have thought that it's really the only thing that they can do in these circumstances. And even though you're not going to probably drive Russia out by military means alone, what you are doing is um, creating a set of circumstances when the pressure is then on the Russian home front, if you like. So it become we'll be looking for, if not a collapse, total collapse of morale, as might have been the case, I think, in the middle of last year, inside the, the, the Russian ranks, what you might see as a sort of um, a political collapse of support for the war back home, given that it's actually not going anywhere. And all the, the propaganda line that's been spun to the people is, is revealed to be completely threadbare. Now, we know it takes a long time for these things to work through, but we also know that there are very few signs uh, that the collapse is coming until it's actually really imminent. So I think that's this is an intelligent, sensible strategy, as long as you say, Saul, that there are no more repeats, if the reports are true, of the situation that seems to have occurred in Avdivka, when you hold the line, you hold the line, you hold the line, then you decide to pull out, but you've left it too late. So let's hope they've learned some lessons there. Yeah. So a connected question from Ryan Lum. He asks, with the fall of Avdivka over the weekend, uh, where the Ukrainian army pulled back, and some sources say this has a lot to do with a lack of ammunition on the Ukrainian side, is it the start of a worrying phase of Russian momentum? And if it is, uh, Ryan goes on to say, should this be the time for us uh, in the West to start encouraging Ukraine to talk about negotiation, either that or Western intervention. I don't think we come to that, uh, Ryan. Uh, You'll have heard from Askold saying that actually, no, there's still a determination to keep going. There are uh, positive signs that uh, more and better weapons might be on the way. uh, And we all know what is likely to happen. And look at the behavior of the Russian regime over the last couple of weeks with these extrajudicial murders. I mean, this is a rogue regime that needs to be stopped and it needs to be stopped on the battlefield. I don't mean I don't know how many times I need to say that, Ryan. The idea of negotiation is 
is slightly pointless at this point. You need to have the Russians on the back foot, and they certainly aren't at this stage. So no, I don't think it means that Russia is about to make a lot of gains for the reasons I've already pointed out. Uh, and it's not yet time, uh, Ryan, for either negotiation or, much more dangerously, direct Western intervention. Okay, we've got an email here from Michael Ritson. He doesn't say where he's from or who he is and what he does, but I suspect he's got some specialist military knowledge. He writes, I was just listening to your listeners' questions of episode 132 and heard a fellow listener remark about how so many systems have been called wonder weapons or game changers, while the effectiveness of those systems could be debated. So he wants to add to this that no military commentator or expert in the military field has used those words to describe any Western system or piece of equipment. This is the doing of journalists who have no understanding of the military world. To add to this, he says, there are systems which you could say are definitely game changers. For example, the Patriot system and the HIMARS M270 MRLS, as they have had a profound impact in either defense or the disruption of the Russian armed forces. However, what many Western weapons bring to the table, especially tanks and armored vehicles, is their focus on crew safety in comparison to their Soviet Russian counterparts. A report from October stated that five out of 71 Leopard 2 tanks have been completely lost, but not a single crew member has died. And he contrasts that with the Russians, where pretty much everyone in their tanks, when they get badly hit, are casualties. And he goes on to make the last point. Will we see the same with the F-16? In other words, is it going to be really genuinely effective? Maybe. I can't tell you with certainty. However, what I can tell you is that the F-16 will bring a lot more capabilities than the Su-27s the Ukrainians operate right now. For example, they will be able to use all three operating methods of the HRMS anti-radar missiles. They have better radars and electronics than older Russian jets and have the capability to use the so-called AMRAN-120CD missiles, which will increase anti-air lethality significantly. Also, with the added stockpiles of air-to-ground munitions for the F-16, the strain of 155mm and other artillery munitions will be lessened slightly. I hope this helps. And it's fascinating stuff, Michael, so thank you for that. Okay, final question. Uh, it's been quite a long podcast. So final question from James Forrester. He writes, there's a lot of talk in recent weeks about what would be Russia's next target if and when they were to succeed in Ukraine. Moldova, the Baltic states and Poland have all been discussed. But why, says James, is there no mention of Kazakhstan? If Putin's aim is really to resurrect the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan represents the biggest territorial gain. It's rich in both hydrocarbons and rare earths that were said in the last episode to be a key factor behind the invasion of Ukraine. Plus, there's a huge Russian-speaking population. And best of all, unlike Ukraine, there's hardly any army available to resist, not to mention Western allies. I would be very interested to hear your answer to this, Patrick, what, what's your thoughts? Well, I think the answer would have been before the Ukrainian invasion that there was no need to because relations were so good. There was a kind of mutual, uh, well, or rather there was a kind of rather one-sided dependency uh, on the Kazakhstan side, which meant there was no interest at all in Russia actually you know, invading what was essentially a sort of you know, friend and friendly country and an ally who was doing pretty much its bidding. Uh, so, you know, Putin before the war, saw not just Kazakhstan, but the other Central Asian states uh, as being, you know, very much on his side. He regarded it as being a very stable region. And he was able to pretty much do his will, politically speaking, economically speaking, over those countries. However, that has all changed uh, since the 
invasion. And Russian influence, I think, in Central Asia has been deteriorating pretty rapidly ever since. Now, of course, you know, during the 20, first 21 years of his reign, I think we can call it that, Russian relations remained pretty relatively unchanged on, on that sort of basis I've just mentioned in Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Um, there were bit, periods of tension going back to 2005 when Kyrgyzstan had their, what was uh, their tulip revolution. This is one of the so-called color revolutions that Putin rails against a sort of Western-inspired sort of backstabbing by former allies in his rants. But nonetheless, at the beginning of 2022, before the full-scale invasion, the Kremlin could be pretty confident that it was the preeminent power in that region. And just before the invasion, January 2022, Kazakhstan uh, actually went to Moscow, appealed to Moscow for help. The president there, Nazarbayev, uh, was uh, handing over to a sort of hand-picked successor, Kasim Jomart Tukayev. And uh, there was a lot of sort of uh, unrest in the streets of trouble over economic issues, but also over the, the fact that, you know, basically the regime was just handing over to a, a trusted successor. And so Russian forces came in, security forces came in to help the local security forces to put down the unrest. But since then, things have changed. So places like Kazakhstan have looked to Russia and seen what they're capable of doing and thinking, well, you know, do we actually want to be at the mercy of, of a rapacious state like that? And so they've started to sort of, you know, explore their options. And one of their options, of course, is to, to start looking further eastwards towards China and sort of um, try and build relationships there as a sort of insurance policy, if you like, against Russian aggression. So at the moment, uh, just to stick with Kazakhstan, I think they're kind of, it's not a very nice position to be in, but they've got a, a kind of foot, <laughs> they're kind of riding two tigers with a, with a foot on each, both of which uh, you don't really would not choose to have as friends, but geography forces you to actually make these choices. So even though Kazakhstan did actually show some spirit, it didn't back the Ukraine invasion, of course, incurring the displeasure of, of Putin. But it's, at the same time, it's got to live with Russia on its on its doorstep. So they still have a significant economic relationship, particularly relating to energy, etc. So sorry, I'm this is a, a complicated question, so it's rather a complicated answer. But the fact is, you know, Russia, I don't think, has any designs on Kazakhstan at the moment because it's got its hands full, but its behavior in Ukraine has certainly eroded uh, what trust there was between them before. And so relations uh, have definitely deteriorated, and Kazakhstan is, is like the others, is looking elsewhere, maintaining its, its relationship with Russia insofar as it has to but also uh, trying to get other allies who would perhaps you know, give it some greater sense of security. Okay, that's all we have time for. Do join us next Wednesday for another episode of Battleground 44 and also on Friday when we'll be bringing you the latest news from Ukraine and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.